Hello everyone. Do you like reading? Do you like walking? Do you like thinking about your life? Then we have got something for you. Our Common Ground Pilgrimages are going to be announcing our slate of fall and winter 2020 pilgrimages on March 2nd. So if you sign up for our newsletter at readingandwalkingwith.com, you will be the first to know when registration launches and only people on our newsletter will get 30 minutes early registration access and it's first come first serve. So signing up first might mean the difference between getting a spot or not. There's less than 20 spots on each pilgrimage and one of them might be involving me and a book that we all love. So you're talking about you leading a pilgrimage with he's just not that into you? A hundred percent, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, I'm there. So that's readingandwalkingwith.com. Sign up to the newsletter. Be the first to know about our pilgrimages this year. Chapter 28. The Madness of Mr. Crouch. Harry, Ron, and Hermione went up to the Owlery after breakfast on Sunday to send a letter to Percy asking, as Sirius had suggested, whether he had seen Mr. Crouch lately. They used Hedwig because it had been so long since she'd had a job. I'm Casper Terkyle. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm John Green. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. So, hello, everyone, and we're so thrilled to have our very special guest, John Green, with us for this whole episode. Welcome, John. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. For those of you who haven't yet discovered John, John's the author of Turtles All the Way Down, The Fault in Our Stars. He's the host of The Anthropocene Reviewed and Dear Hank and John, beloved video essayist with Brother Hank on YouTube, and most importantly, one of those quiet, good people who makes the world a better place with everything he makes. And we're so glad to have him with us. The the only thing I would add to your introduction is that I am, in addition to the things that you mentioned, a big fan of Harry Potter and the Sacred Texts. So it is a real pleasure to be here, uh, having been briefly a Divinity School, well, not really a Divinity School student so much as a Divinity School dropout. (laughs) But can I ask, so what compelled you to apply to Divinity School? Part of it was that I, I wanted to have a day job, and I liked going to church, and I thought that would be a reasonably good day job while I work on writing. And part of it was that I'd studied Islamic history, and I was really interested in facilitating interreligious dialogue between Muslims and Christians. And part of it was that I didn't know what to do with my life, and graduate school seemed to be a thing that I could do with my life that was tangible and made sense. But it became clear to me very quickly that I would not have been a good uh, priest. What made you drop out before you started? I worked as a student chaplain at a children's hospital doing CPE, clinical pastoral education, which is part of most uh, denominations' process of becoming ordained. And during that period, I realized, oh my gosh, like I am in way over my head. And I this is not what I want to do when I grow up. When I did my CPE, I fainted and gave myself vertigo. That is how much I think I, on a psychosomatic <laughs> level, hated CPE. It is, it's like hazing. Yeah. It really is. I also fainted. Really? Yeah, I fainted my first night on call. Uh, this young woman, maybe 12 or 13 years old, came in having had a four-wheeler accident, like an ATV accident. P.S. Just don't with ATVs. Just don't. Uh, and she she was injured, but it wasn't serious, but she was throwing up. And for some reason, I just fainted dead away. Like we were in a Victorian romance novel. <laughs> and 
I woke up like lying on a hospital bed, so embarrassed and also thinking, oh my gosh, for that family, how terrifying must it have been to have what for all they know is a doctor faint dead away at the sight of their daughter (laughs) who was fine. Yeah. I went to visit a mother who was fine, but she'd given birth to a little girl who was having some problems. So they stayed in the hospital. I walk into the room and I wasn't feeling well and then fainted onto the woman who had just given birth. Oh, God. (laughs) She caught me. And then I woke up and a code had been called and I was in her hospital bed. (laughs) Oh, my God. It was. I think one of the most embarrassing moments of my life. Yeah, I was completely mortified. And then the nurses were trying to make me feel better by being like, you know, I fainted once, but then like the things that made them faint were properly (laughs) horrible. (laughs) Well, John, one of the the questions I had for you was, you know, I was listening to the most recent episode of um, your podcast, The Anthropocene Reviewed, and you actually talk a little bit about your time as a as a student chaplain and your kind of process thinking through divinity school. And the thing that struck me really was that you're still doing the work that you would have done as a priest. It's just you're called an author. (laughs) Yeah, I hope so. And certainly that's been something I've thought a lot about, that what drew me, I think, to that work was the same spark that draws me to the work I do now. And it's also the same spark that draws me to Harry Potter and the sacred text, this urge to look for meaning, to find meaning, to share meaning, and to talk about stuff that matters with people I care about. Absolutely. Well, let's dig into that together. And um, if I can ask you to tell us a little story about this theme of inspiration that we read chapter 28 through for this week, and uh, we'll, we'll do some of that theological work together. So this is the question that authors get asked the most. Where do you get your ideas? Where do you get your inspiration? It's a cliche among authors that this will be the question inevitably that you are asked, even if only two people come to one of your readings. And indeed, the first time I did a reading for Looking for Alaska, only two people came. (laughs) And worse still, they had both purchased the book on Amazon. And so the bookstore didn't sell a single copy. (laughs) And they'd bought like 250. And so I read a passage from Looking for Alaska, and I was extremely nervous. And it was just these two people and my girlfriend, who's now my wife, And at the end of it, I was like, are there any questions? And one of the two people raised their hand and said, where do you get your inspiration? (laughs) And I'd never been asked that question before because I'd never been asked any question before as an author. And I've been asked it a lot of times since, but I've never had a satisfactory answer. I've never been able to answer that question. And what I said that day is most of what I say today, which is that I don't know And then I also never get any big ideas like uh, wizards in high school. I never get any of those ideas. I get get little tiny ideas that I stitch together into bigger ideas. And reading this chapter, I kept thinking about that. I kept thinking about how, in some ways, inspiration for me is not so much about these thunderclap moments, but instead about finding leprechaun gold with the help of a niffler (laughs) that was buried for me by someone I care about. That's much closer to what inspiration feels like and looks like to me than, 
you know, these moments where from on high, some big idea comes to you or where there's a muse whispering in your ear or whatever. John, I really love that point. And I think that part of what I find so attractive about that is that it seems like a like what therefore needs to be involved in inspiration is some sort of ritual of honoring the moments of inspiration that we get and then having the discipline to sit down and invest the time in stitching them together. Right. Yeah. So much of it isn't doing the work. Yeah. I have a friend who's an author and she says that the hardest part of writing is the butt in the chair part. For me, it's the act of opening up Microsoft Word. Like you would think that I've been asked to run a marathon. <laughs> I find so many reasons not to open Microsoft Word. And then once I do, I'm like, oh, yeah, I know how to, I, I can do this for a while. This isn't so bad. I actually do know how to type. Yeah, I know how to type. I'm not sure I know how to write, but I'm a great <laughs> typist. Well, isn't that what inspiration is, right? It's the difference between typing and writing. Mm. No, that's a great observation. I think I stole it from Truman Capote. He said about Jack Kerouac, that's not writing, that's typing. (laughs) (laughs) What a phenomenal criticism. I mean, there's no coming back from that. If you're Jack Kerouac, you've just got to hang it up and retire. You know what Jack Kerouac was really good at? Transitions. (laughs) And that's what we're doing as we go into our 30-second recap. (laughs) He was. He transitioned from being a straight-laced guy to a beatnik. You're great. Thank you. That was perfect. Thank you. It was inspired. So, John, as you know, what we're going to do now is we're each going to have a go in 30 seconds to review the entire chapter that we read. You know, we like to find a balance between competitive and collaborative. So I think it's my turn to go first and I'll have a go. And then, uh, Vanessa, you'll go next. And, John, you'll bring us home with any other bits of the chapter that you want to bring some attention to. All right, Vanessa, I think I'm ready. Okay. On your mark, get set. So in this chapter, Harry has this big adventure by going outside with um, the other champions. They go and check out the maze, uh, which is being revealed to them by Ludo Bagman. Harry's like, chill, it's a maze. It's really small, but they're going to grow. Okay, great. And he sees um, Hagrid kind of digging something. Something's happening. Um, Then they're about to walk back and Bagman wants to talk to him. But Crumb is like, I want to have a conversation. And so he's like, okay, chill. I can get out of the Bagman situation. I'm going to talk with, oh my God, so much happens. Um, And then, uh, oh, there's Mr. Crouch. He has to go to Dumbledore. That 30 seconds passed really quickly. It's great. You handed it off to me like a baton. Yes. Here we go. Relay race part two. Vanessa. Three, two, one, go. And Bagman is clearly confused about what's going on and like everybody thought that he was like sick. And so what is he even doing on Hogwarts campus? And how did he get there? And he keeps saying things like, I need to talk to Dumbledore. And then he thinks that he's talking to Weatherby. And then in these moments of clarity, he's like, Voldemort is going to rise again. And Crumb is like, um, Harry's like, I'm going to go get Dumbledore. And Crumb is like, don't leave me alone with this guy. By the way, are you really sleeping with Hermione? And um, Harry is like, no, and you stay here. And then um, and then he goes up to Dumbledore's office. Awesome. You said Bagman instead of Crouch oh. at the very beginning. John, if you want to use that to make comedic effect of Vanessa, feel free. Yeah. All right. Three, two, one. Just for the record, Vanessa said uh, Barty Crouch. Uh, No, she didn't say Barty Crouch when she meant to. uh, Anyway, moving on. I think the only thing that's been missed is that this chapter starts off with a lot of house elf stuff uh, that is weird and a little bit distracting. And also Hagrid 
puts a bunch of gold coins that turn out to be leprechaun gold uh, into the ground so that Nifflers can find them, which is a really just kind of like lovely moment. And then Harry and Ron have a conversation about wealth and I'm out of time. Well done. Oh, we have a winner. Uh, you guys are just being generous and I appreciate it and I'll take it. <laughs> Don't worry, it's a leprechaun win, so it doesn't actually last. Uh- <laughs> John, something that I would love to talk to you about that you touched on a little bit with your story is the way that we see Barty Crouch at the end of this chapter as a potential metaphor for creativity or inspiration, that when he's under the imperious curse, that's how most of us live our lives all the time. But there are these moments of clarity Mm. where he's able to break through out of like grit and desire and he is almost able to communicate something true, but then, like, this force takes over him and he sort of collapses into this other state. I love this idea that it's little things stitched together. Most of your life you're going to be distracted and have to do laundry and have to be in relationship with other people. And then there are these moments of inspiration that come to us, like breaking through an imperious curse, and that it's our job to follow through on those moments of clarity. I really like that. I really like that as an image. And there's something about the Imperious Curse throughout these novels, right, that reminds us of our everyday lives, that so much of the time we're doing what we're doing because we were told to or because we think it's the thing to do or because it's the thing that's right in front of us. Uh, We're sort of, you know, moths going wherever the light is on. And then you do have these moments where you feel an awareness or a clarity that you don't feel in your everyday life. And there's lots of ways to describe those moments. There's lots of ways to understand it, I think. But for me, a lot of what I'm trying to do when I'm writing is get to that, is get past the mundane, everyday, repetitive tasks and try to have some kind of clarity about consciousness, some kind of clarity about the questions that I'm writing about, And I don't have that in my everyday life, you know? I mean, almost all the time, I am thinking thoughts that a squirrel thinks. I mean, I'm thinking (laughs) I'm hungry or my leg hurts. (laughs) And then there are occasions when I am not, and I I try to seek those out. Joan Didion said that the only trick to being a writer is always having a pen on you (laughs) because you never know when the writer bit of you will come out. Which just makes me think in this chapter of Crouch has probably been wandering around mm-hmm. wanting to do something forever, but he doesn't have a witness. Right. And so I just think that, I mean, I know for myself, any good idea I have only comes to fruition if I find a partner to work on it with. To me, the only way that I can stay inspired is by interacting with somebody else. I think I really love what you're saying, Vanessa, because I think something about inspiration is raising our hopes of what is possible. And to have that affirmed by another person makes that feeling inside of us more trustworthy in some way. And I'm thinking about the unnamed house elf (laughs) who we meet in this chapter, who says to the trio, you know, house elves have no right to be unhappy when there is work to be done and masters to be served. It's a deeply uncomfortable sentence to read, I think. And I feel like there is not enough inspiration or validation of of perhaps those small moments of freedom that are felt. And in fact, it's so threatening. So when someone like Dolby does appear on the scene, it's stamped out, it's pushed to the side. And I think we, we do the same to our own inspiration sometimes. 
time. So we think that's a stupid idea. No one would ever like it. Who am I to do that? You know, I don't know anything. And there's something very exposing about being inspired because the the fundamental rules of the world no longer apply when you're inspired, right? Like you, you feel you can do anything. It's a dangerous thing to be inspired in some way. I think it is. I also think that within inspiration, there's this mortification that accompanies trying to make anything, trying to respond to inspiration, trying to share it. There's this fear that it will come across mm-hmm. as cheesy or as embarrassing or that people will think that you're ridiculous, especially when it comes to the the deep inspirations. I think that the places where we feel really powerfully connected to some big idea it feels like it's if you tell people that there's like a fear of public exposure and embarrassment to me at least that accompanies any experience of inspiration there's the thought of oh my god if i write this down is it going to be really good or is it in fact going to be something that people think is just the worst thing that they've ever seen in their entire lives Yeah, a hundred percent. And what I think is really interesting about this is that the fear of humiliation is the fear about becoming an outsider, right? Like Mm -hmm. if if people will laugh at me, I won't belong anymore. And so inspiration in some way, there's something boldly individual about inspiration. Yeah, I think a lot of it is about watching and paying attention and paying attention can put you on the outside. And I was thinking about that while reading this chapter because Harry watches Hagrid up in the Owlery for hours. Harry Harry's up there for a long time watching Hagrid dig what he thinks is a garden. And that struck me as so interesting that it's not like he goes up there for five minutes to take a break from the world. He's paying very close, careful attention to what he's seeing and experiencing but he's very much on the outside of it. He's very much an observer of it. That's so interesting. I love this idea that inspiration is both isolating, but it's also, to some extent, the reason that we want to act on our inspiration is in order to connect, right? Mm -hmm. Being inspired, I think, to some extent, is about honoring the deepest thing within you and then hoping that somebody else will recognize that deep thing within you and say, me too. Yeah, I mean, like, we see it with Hermione. She's very inspired, and she's incredibly motivated with SPEW. And she has to be, like, mocked constantly by Ron and Harry. But she has this, like, burn inside of her. And, I mean, she's getting rejected on all sides. The house elves are like, no white lady, you don't understand. (laughs) Nobody is like, yes, Hermione. But her desire is to connect with house elves, right, and to have a more integrated society. And I think that that is what keeps her inspired. It's the desire for connection, and she's willing to remain in isolation for the hope of connection. Mm. So I think of inspiration and creativity as potentially a really radical act. As we were talking about earlier, it can really isolate you. And I'm inspired by Dobby, but I'm curious as to what we think Dobby's inspiration is other than Harry Potter that keeps him going through this constant barrage of negativity. Dobby is inspired for his own freedom and has been so shut down by everybody else that he knows that he is not going to get any support. And what I think is amazing is that he keeps demanding his wages, right? He doesn't get pulled down into the dark side. 
And I'm wondering about that, like what keeps us, once we've been inspired, what keeps us sure of it? Because there's a very fine line between inspired and insanity. Oh, this is so juicy because that line between insanity and inspiration, I think, is exactly what's going on with Crouch as well. As he's communicating on these two levels, he's, you know, giving his everyday orders to Weatherby. And then he's like, tell Dumbledore, you know, like help. And I think of people like Vincent van Gogh or I think about great comedians, like people who are sometimes the most creatively inspired at also on the edge of real dysfunction at a mental health level. And I think there are people who who make the choice to say, okay, I will forego some of that creativity to have stability. And others who say, you know, I can't live without painting or I can't live without feeling this intensity. But it, it also means I don't have the stability to maintain work or relationships in the way that that I might do. Like there's a sacrifice to it. And I, I think the other place where I really see it is in the hate mail that Hermione gets. Well, John, I'm wondering about you. I mean, like you're a creative person professionally. Do you feel as though there are psychological sacrifices to that? Well, I have serious mental health problems. I have obsessive compulsive disorder and uh, have had major depressive episodes in my life. But I, I don't think that I'm creative because I have a uh, mental health problem. And I know a lot of really, a lot of my favorite writers are entirely sane. And it's true. I I do think that there's a higher, it's pretty solid evidence. There's a higher rate of mental illness among people who work in creative fields. There's also like a higher rate of mental illness among lawyers. I do think that responding to inspiration by making art is in and of itself an action that separates you from a a lot of the world, right? It's not a decision necessarily that anyone would make if they were just a moth going where the light was on because it's economically irrational. It puts you in a situation where you're going to have somewhat less stability in your life than than you might otherwise have. And so I do think in that sense, it is a choice that does mean some sacrifices. I was just told a story. I was visiting Yale Divinity School, and we were meeting with a professor there, and she studies hope in incarcerated women. Mm. And so much of, you know, the prison industrial complex is trying to stamp out any sense of individuality and creativity. And so they're not allowed to wear makeup. And so a lot of the women will use whiteout to do very ornate drawings on their toenails as a form of a political act of resistance, right? You can't see what's on my toes. Whiteout is allowed. And so they will draw these, like, incredible pieces of art on each other's toenails. And I think that there's something about the human spirit and inspiration in there, right, to go back to the book of Genesis, right? But like, I do think that there's something so primal about the desire to create and to honor the inspiration within us that we will keep resisting. I mean, right, like there's a book of poetry that came out of Treblinka. Like, I think that no matter what, we want to honor our own inspirations. I also think that's part of how we know that we are people. It's part of how we know that we're human. And it's part of how we know that Dobby is a person. And I think that's a really important thing because so much of the way that house elves are, are described in the book are as, as separate from the world of wizards and witches and even the world of muggles. But we know that Dobby is a person. He may not be human, but we know that, that he's a person. 
I were in such uncomfortable theological territory for me, though. <laughs> Why? Because <laughs> I hate the idea that, like, oh, they still have their humanity, even though they're oppressed, can like make us feel too good about people who are being oppressed. Right. It can. It you don't ever want it to be a oh well, well ergo there's no need to you know <laughs> lobby for justice because people can hold on to their humanity even in the most hideous forms of oppression. Exactly. Well, and and I think actually what's powerful about these books is that it makes the argument that not everyone can hold on to their humanity. I feel like that's in some ways what we see with Pettigrew, that, you know, some people under that extreme amount of strain, once they've made a bad decision and they end up in really, really difficult, pressured situations where their life and the, the lives of people they love might be in danger, like they become something that is so far from who they want to be. I Like, I was this super intense climate activist who talked about, should we do a bomb threat at the United Nations in order to get press coverage? Like, that conversation happened. And I, I saw what happened with these people who had this vision for a transformed world of justice and environmental sustainability and love and peace end up doing things which just were completely in opposition to what they stood for. And so I feel like, that's what I love about theology is like that we are both filled with that divine spark and this terrifying, destructive capacity, like that the dance within us is always between those two things. And that, and I think we see this in the text a lot, that how we react in one situation isn't yes. necessarily like true of how we would react in other situations. Exactly. Well, that reminds me, Vanessa, of a, a little scene that we see in this chapter, which is Hermione at the breakfast table. She's um, subscribed to the newspapers. She doesn't want to hear all the stories about what's going on from the Slytherins. So she's like, huh, I'm going to gonna get my own subscription. And so she's eagerly awaiting an owl. And instead, she has this like enormous flutter of wings of about eight different owls all coming essentially with hate mail. And then one of them is filled with this kind of like wizarding poison, some sort of undiluted pus which explodes over her hands and, and erupts into these horrific boils. Of course, it, it reminded me of social media and commenting online and, and just the way in which anonymity can make us be our most hateful selves. I was also really struck with that by how so many people in this chapter are acting on incomplete information. So many people in this chapter think they know what they don't know. Like Rita Skeeter's readers think that they know Hermione's with Harry, Barty Crouch knows that Percy's name is Weatherby. Uh, everyone initially thinks that gold the Niffers are finding is real. Percy thinks he knows what's going on with Crouch. Karkakoff thinks that there's this treacherous plot against Krum. That struck me because so much of our actions are built off of this incomplete information. So much of what we do, especially when we're acting out hurtfully, is based on knowing things that that we don't actually know and and working from incomplete information incomplete pictures of people because of we don't know them intimately or because even when we do know people intimately we don't know them all the way down and it just that just really struck me because that's something i i struggle with in my own life like how do i how do I treat every person as an individual human when I have this overwhelming desire to categorize and to understand the world in ways that make sense to me? I don't even know myself all the way down. <laughs> no, yeah, me neither. I mean, and to some extent, this comes back to inspiration, right? There are certain people who inspire within us a mm. desire to know them all the way down. And there are other people who don't inspire that in us. And so we categorize them, right? <laughs> 
And so the trick is to teach ourselves how to stay inspired to know someone all the way down when it's your gut to do the opposite. Right. Well, that points to how so much inspiration is about seeing it through. Right? We all have these moments of a great idea. We should do Harry Potter in the sacred text, but the work is in, is in seeing it through. And I think it's the same with love. I mean, I, I think love gives us that feeling of inspiration, but then we have to hold on to it and see it through. And the kind of radical love that we're called, I, I think, to have toward other people, you're not going to have the inspiration for that every single day, but you will get it occasionally. And that's what the calling is, I think. Yeah. Thanks, John. So we're now going to enter our sacred practice time. And this is a chance for us to engage with a little bit of text in a really close reading. And this practice comes from a very old traditional monastic practice. So monks or nuns who live together in monasteries would come together and choose a little bit of their sacred text, the Bible, and try using different steps to find extra layers of meaning. John, do you have the book in front of you by any chance? I do. Great. So this week we're going to do Lectio Divina, which is a four-part reading practice, which I will walk everybody through. But the first thing that we need is a sentence. So, John, I'm wondering if you could just put your finger somewhere randomly in the chapter, and the first place that your finger goes, read us that sentence. The rest of the class was very eager to leave. Moody had given them such a rigorous test of hex deflection that many of them were nursing small injuries. (laughs) Okay, so step one of the practice is where we talk about what is literally happening in the sentence. Casper, do you want to tell us about the sentence? So at this point in the story, Ron, Harry, and Hermione are trying to figure out what's happened with the whole Crouch situation. And so they're staying behind in defense against the Dark Arts class to try and talk to Moody to get his account of what happened because, you know, he made his way down to the scene of the crime. The rest of the class is eager to leave, but the trio wants to stay behind and interrogate Professor Moody. Yes, and they're eager to leave because he has physically abused all of them. Which at this point, they just seem totally fine with. No one is making any complaints about physical injuries in the classroom. You're in your fourth year of Hogwarts by now. You've gotten used to it. (laughs) Yeah, you've gotten used to small injuries in your class. No problem. Okay, great. Good job, Casper. So step two is where we pull out a word or a phrase and think allegorically about how we can infuse the sentence with more meaning from other cultural or religious stories. So I'll just read it really quickly. The rest of the class was very eager to leave. Moody had given them such a rigorous test of hex deflection that many of them were nursing small injuries. So what I'm noticing and that we haven't talked about at all is the name Moody. Me too. I was looking at exactly the same thing. Okay, cool. Moody, I think it was a very gendered word. It's something that like men accuse women of being. Right. It's like, oh, you're Moody, you're having your period. It means like irrational, right? That like your moods dictate your behavior. Well, and that they change. I mean, I, I think that's what's so juicy about this particular use of the name is that 
of course, fundamentally moody is not who he says he is. And so there is a a sense of a doubled nature that is embodied in one person, kind of Jekyll and Hyde situation, that there's something that's dangerous and that's unstable. Yeah. Which is a lot of what we've been talking about this episode, the fact that, you know, hmm. each individual contains multitudes and we are each capable of tremendous harm and, and tremendous love. Well, and I love that, John, because I was reading it in a negative way, but you've just reframed it to say, but this is just who we all are. That's what it means to be human is to have that duality at our core. I was also thinking of the word nursing, that you think of nursing as someone else taking care mm. of you and the the moments in which we have to nurse ourselves. And to some extent, that's what we teach children on purpose, right? It's like, well, you have to cry it out. You have to learn that you are capable of taking care of yourself. But you also want to teach children, like, I love you enough that I will always be there to take care of you. But I think sometimes we're the only ones who can take care of ourselves. And so we see these students nursing their own small injuries. Okay, so stage three of Lectio is where we ask ourselves what this sentence reminds us of in our own lives. Casper, do you mind reading the sentence for us? Yeah. The rest of the class was very eager to leave. Moody had given them such a rigorous test of hex deflection that many of them were nursing small injuries. John, is there a story that you're reminded of from your own life that that comes to mind with this piece of text? It does make me think about parenting and about the moments that I've had recently where I realized that both of my children have lives now that are very separate from our lives, from from Sarah and I, that they are now nursing small injuries that we don't even know about, that we don't ever, ever hear about. And there's something heartbreaking to me about the fact that I no longer know about the small injuries that are being nursed by my children, whereas I think I did, you know, for the first year or two of their lives. But there's also something really wonderful about it because it means that, you know, they've grown enough to be separate from us. Hmm. On some level, pretty much from the moment that they're born, they're running away from you and you have to reconcile yourself to that. But there's something beautiful about it too, because you want them to. You want them to have a rich, fulfilling life that is their own, that belongs to them. Because they're, because they're running to who they are going to become. Right. There's also something it, that relates to inspiration in that, I think, because part of wanting to share an idea that you've had, part of wanting to share an insight that you've had is accepting and acknowledging that once you share it, it won't be yours anymore, at least not in the way it was. It won't belong only to you anymore. That's what I find so fascinating about Moody, or really Body Crouch Jr. as Moody, is that he is a fabulous teacher. You know, if we're thinking about the light and dark in all of us, like in this book, he exhibits so much fun and skill and ability to manage a classroom, which is a whole thing in itself. Yeah, there's something about, you know, those movies where you get put into someone else's body and then suddenly you're a fantastic trial lawyer or whatever it is. Like, (laughs) who knows what we're capable of? But that's what it reminds me of. It reminds me of dangerous people Mm. who I'm attracted to in one way or another. There have been a few people in my life who I'm like, 
I am so attracted to you, and you have so much potential to hurt me. Is that because I have a motorcycle? Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And it's how much do I hand myself over Mm. to you, Mm. right? And my instinct is to completely pull away and hate them. If I see someone too attractive on the subway, I find a reason to hate them. I'm like, (laughs) ugh, you probably are a jerk, and I can tell by your shoes. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, look at those shoes, because that's always what I do, too. I always look at the shoes and I'm like, ugh, as if I could ever like anyone with those shoes. <laughs> Never mind that you're the most beautiful human being I've ever seen. The shoes prove to me that I wouldn't be attracted to you. It's not that you don't want me. But it's hard to figure out if the people who scare us a little bit are people we should hide from or people who we should make ourselves vulnerable to. Because often I think that those are the people who can teach us the most. Mm. And obviously there's a line where somebody is like just dangerous. But I know that in certain rooms, the person who I am most terrified of is the person who I should probably talk to because the reason that I am terrified of them is because they're speaking to an insecurity within myself. Mm. What about you, Casper? I'm just thinking of the times when I'm, like, very eager to leave a situation where there is a rigorous test. (laughs) I'm reading the news at the moment, especially around Syria. I'm just like, what do I do? And, like, it gets to the point where I'm just like, I don't even want to read about it anymore because it's just, like, that's the easier thing is just to ignore it because I'm just completely incapacitated. Like, I don't feel like my governmental representatives have any leverage and even if they did what's the right thing to do like it's just such an overwhelming question that i don't know i just i feel myself withdrawing from the difficult question i think if i get in the habit of always wanting to leave the class being eager to leave like then i don't show up when there is something really obvious that can be done which i should do I, i think that's what i worry about when i read this sentence okay so let's do stage four John, would you like to read the sentence for us one more time? Sure. The rest of the class was very eager to leave. Moody had given them such a rigorous test of hex deflection that many of them were nursing small injuries. So step four is where we ask ourselves what it is that we have been called to, not just from this sentence, but also from the process of doing Lectio Divina and this conversation that we have ended up having. I think for me, it's fighting against that urge to leave, fighting against that urge to walk away from the rigorous tests of hex deflection. I'm thinking about, um, John, what you were saying of the moody is something that is in us all, that duality. And I think it's so easy to make judgments on that one interaction or that one moment in time. So I think the invitation I feel is to extend the period of engagement before making at least a final judgment. I don't think I can help making initial judgments, but not to let myself fall into stories that are simply incomplete. Like Mrs. Weasley sends that really small Easter egg to Hermione because she read the article about Hermione. Like that is embarrassing, Molly. Like, you know Hermione better than that. And I feel like I don't want to make that kind of mistake. I think the thing I feel called to, which I'm stealing this from someone who said this recently to me, and I wish I remembered who. So whoever it is, I'm sorry, I'm not giving you credit. But I'm wondering about the people who are leaving, sort of like holding their hand with some small injury. And I am an introvert, and I just know that 
calling myself to stay at parties that I don't want to be at is like way too big of a calling for me. When I want to leave a party, I like I run. But the thing that I think I can do is when I feel like I'm nursing a small injury in myself is like text somebody else or call somebody else to ask about an injury I know that they have. Because mm. I wonder, right, if I'm walking out of this classroom and I'm Padma or whoever, how nice it would be if somebody said, how is your hand, even though their nose is twitching? Just checking in and nursing somebody else when I feel like all I want to do is nurse myself. This week's voicemail is from Bronwyn Toth. Hi, Vanessa and Casper. I have been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text for a couple of months now, and admittedly, I have not listened to every single episode, but I have been listening to the new episodes as they come up, and I kind of got a little bit of a wild hair when I heard that Vanessa said that she was going to be blessing Umbridge, because, of course, how do you bless somebody like Umbridge? And then I remembered something from my personal life that I really wanted to bring up that I thought might make it a little bit easier for Vanessa to bless Umbridge. So I grew up in a really liberal town and in my early adult life, I became pregnant and I moved in with my mother who lived in North Idaho, which is a very conservative part of America. And I remember going to my jobs and being pregnant and all of the people who were there who were experiencing this with me, who worked with me, they would offer their blessings. They really wanted to offer their blessings and they really wanted to pray for me because I was a single mom. And also people often found out later after knowing me for longer than a week that I was also gay. And this was a thing that a lot of people were really shocked at. And when they offered blessings, it was actually, it wasn't like a, oh, hey, you did a really good job and, you know, oh, bless you. It was more like a, I hope that you can, you know, get some help from the Bible at some point in your life. And so I was thinking about that in terms of umbrage, about how we don't necessarily have to lift her up and say, oh, bless you because you are really hardworking or you really stick to your guns or anything like that. Maybe we could kind of compel umbrage to to be a more compassionate person. You know, we've learned about love. We've learned about commitment. We've learned about white privilege. We could compel her to really understand the teachings of the stories that are that are happening around her. She's in it. She's in the middle of it. We could lift her up and just hope that she does better. So I don't know if blessings necessarily have to be, oh, you did good. I feel like occasionally they can also be, hey, you're not doing great, and let me help you. Bronwyn, I... A lot of people have already had feedback for the blessing that I haven't given yet, so I'm really excited to demystify that in book five. I didn't mean to cause an uproar, but what I'm really inspired by in your voicemail is that you've taken something that I would have received if I were in your shoes as an aggressive form of blessing and as a type of attempt of conversion and instead have chosen to see the generosity of spirit in that, which I do think is absolutely there. And, you know, when people, people often will come up to testify to me when they find out that I'm an atheist. And in the last several years, I've really chosen to receive that as an act of love. And I think that it can be really hard. It's still really frustrating. But I, I think that you're doing something really beautiful here and showing us that there's love even in these odd moments. And I appreciate your invitation in uh, this generous way that you're anticipating that I'll bless Umbridge. And I hope I live up to that. 
So we're going to come to the end of the episode and we're going to offer a blessing to someone in the chapters we always do. And for us, you know, this chance to bless is really an opportunity to lift up something that we want to pay a special attention to, maybe something to recognize and call out that might be overlooked and that could speak to to us in our lives as well. And so I thought I would bless Victor Crum in this chapter. Victor is really trying to be a gentleman. What I see him doing in the conversation he has with Harry, which he does very discreetly, is to ask, am I getting in the way of something that you two have? Is it inappropriate for me to seek out a relationship with Hermione? And I, I think of my dad who, you know, did the old, very old-fashioned thing to go to my grandparents and ask if they would, you know, accept him as a son-in-law by welcoming him to ask my mom to marry her. There's something beautiful about going to people who care about someone that you care about to ensure that this is a relationship that's welcome and not and not to insert yourself in a way that is, I don't know, unwanted in some way. I, I, I just, I want to bless Victor for being a real gentleman. I hate Victor in this. Go talk to Hermione. I totally agree with you. Talk to your girlfriend. Uh, but they're not together. Just go and be like, hey, I really like you. And don't talk about me. Talk to me. Okay, great. How about you, Vanessa? Who do you want to bless in this chapter? So I would like to offer a blessing to Winky. To me, she seems like somebody who is going through a really hard breakup. She really misses Crouch. And the moment that I want to bless her for is when Hermione is trying to tell Winky, no, 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 no. You're better off without him. Having gone through breakups in my life, there is like no worse thing to hear than like he was a jerk the whole time. It's hard enough to be going through a hard time. But then when people are taking care of you in a way that doesn't feel great, that can just add to the problem. And I think that we have to see those gestures as acts of love. But I just want to bless Winky for, like, going through a breakup and then having to endure this girl who doesn't know her, giving her bad advice. What about you, John? Who would you like to offer a blessing for in this chapter? I would like to offer a blessing to Harry Potter, who I feel like sometimes doesn't get enough love in our deep critical readings of the Harry Potter books because— Who? Harry who? <laughs> because he's Harry Potter. <laughs> Toward the beginning of the chapter, when Harry is in the Owlery and he sends food off to Sirius via Owl and then stays up in the Owlery for several hours, there's so much about Harry that is annoying and frustrating, especially uh, in these early books, especially in this book where he, you know, he continues to go it alone and believe in his own heroic narrative and, and want to be, you know, in, in lots of ways, the sort of prototypical hero. But in that moment, alone, an observer more than a participant in the world, uh, it laid bare for me how alone Harry is through so much of these books and how he has to find connection even though he is different from everyone else in his life, even though he is separated from them visually by his scar uh, and then also just because of, of his history and, and his personality and, and who he is and the role he's going to have to play in the world. And I don't think that would be easy. I have a lot of sympathy for Harry. Even when people are hard on him, I find myself often wanting to 
stand up for him and defend him. And so I'd like to offer a blessing to Harry, uh, who, you know, can sit or stand in the Owlery for hours just watching Hagrid. And uh, I hope he feels at peace up there. Thanks, John. John, it's been so good to have you on the show. Thank you so much. And uh, we're, we're just thrilled. Oh, it's been such a pleasure, really. <laughs> thank, thank you, guys. This has been so fun. This has been Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and leave us a review on iTunes. And please record us a little message on your phone or computer and email it to us at harrypottersacredtext at gmail.com. Join us next month, May 17th, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania for our live show, and then the following month, June 10th, in London, England for our first international foray. Next week, we'll be reading Chapter 29, The Dream, through the theme of chance with our special guest, Melissa Anelli. This episode was produced by Ariana Nedelman, me, Kasper Terkail, and Vanessa Zoltan. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll, and we're part of the Panoply Network, where you can find ours and other great shows on panoply.fm. Thanks to Bromwyn Toth for this week's voicemail, Rebecca and Charlie Ledley, Stephanie Purcell, Julia Argy, and of course, the incomparably wonderful John Green. Thanks, everyone. See you next week. So the whole reason Hank and I have an audience today is because he wrote this song about Harry Potter that was featured on YouTube and became a big hit in the Harry Potter fandom. And that's sort of what spawned the Nerdfighter community. And in that song, the song is called Osseo Deathly Hallows. And everyone was mad at him. Everyone's like, it's Accio. It's Accio. You don't say Osseo. And and then people were just fighting in the comments like, the movies don't decide what the pronunciation is. And here's what it is in the audio book. And then other people were like, no, but if you listen to Joe Rowling herself one time, she said this. And I was like, guys... It's not a real word. It's not a real word. It is now. <laughs> I mean, uh, words words belong to their users. Like let's Yes. Thank but you. I don't know. It'll it would be very interesting if I lived in the Harry Potter world for two minutes, the first thing I would do would be grab my wand and say Osseo and see if it works or if I have to pronounce it Accio.